Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Let's talk about pain for a minute. If you didn't have immediate trauma to an area, let's say a broken bone, then oftentimes pain comes on as more of an annoyance, such as back pain. You shrug it off to sleeping wrong or doing something to it and expect it to disappear after a couple of days. But then, it just kind of hangs on for a while, and weeks go by with your back constantly hurting. Finally, you had enough, and you go to your doctor, who then prescribes you a pain reliever and physical therapy. You do your physical therapy for a few weeks, and the pain continues. And then the next steps are an MRI with possible surgery, or you're just stuck dealing with it. But what if there was more to the pain story? And movement was only a small part of the equation. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today, I have Dr. Angela Cortal joining me to talk about how to find the root causes to your pain. The problem with pain is that it is very multifactorial, which means painkillers and movement might not be enough to get you feeling great again. Before we dive into this episode, this episode is brought to you by my other company, Mountainside Herbals, which has products such as digestive bitters, our very popular Flu Ease tea, which flies off the shelf this time of year, and even raw honey that we harvested ourselves. For listening to the podcast, you can use the coupon code PODCAST to receive 20% off any order. Go to mountainsideherbals.com to learn more. Now, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Angela Cortal. Dr. Angela Cortal is a naturopathic physician based in Oregon. She is passionate about reversing degenerative joint disease by addressing the root causes, and she loves partnering with her patients to optimize their health, happiness, strength, and well-being. Thank you for coming onto the show, Dr. Angela. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Of course, and I, I always like to learn more about uh, the guests uh, that come onto the show and hear more about your background. So can you tell us a little bit more about you, what got you into naturopathic medicine, and uh, what is kind of your main focus? Sure. <clears throat> so I guess it starts in my undergrad years and maybe even a little bit before that. I've always been really passionate and interested in science fields and incidentally at the same time had my own skiing accident that uh, then led into a surgery and a very uh, prolonged and slow recuperation through that while I was going through my undergrad in micro and molecular biology. And so on one front, I was going, going through my, my classes and, and my um, schooling. And on the other front, I was barely keeping it together physically. And, <laughs> and so uh, as the years went by, I slowly got over um, some of the really bad chronic pain, but I had a lot of joint instability and weakness and entered the naturopathic medical school just interested in bringing my my background in science to really helping people one-on-one -on -one in the moment, feeling like I was having um, just a, an, a, a real tangible impact in people's lives. And through my own education, through that program and my early years in practice, I got really, really interested on a personal level. Like, can't, is there anything else that I can do to figure this out? Like, why am I still struggling with this now decade plus uh, old surgical issue? And, and sort of put, put together the pieces between myself and PubMed and experimenting on myself and, uh, and bringing my focus in um, addressing hormonal dysfunction and hormonal imbalances that I, that I was with my patients and integrating that into a chronic, uh, a chronic joint pain. You know, what, what, is, what is the overlap there? Because the more I delved into it, the more I discovered, oh, it's not just me. There's, there's a lot of people out there where there's something larger going on beyond just, oh, that joint has wear and tear. No, there, there actually could be something to be uh, addressed and corrected and sort of change, change the trajectory. So that's what I did for myself in a nutshell and what I love doing with my patients. Which is interesting because your original injury became uh, came from some sort of action, right? And a lot of times we think of uh, these type of injuries as, you know, just from a movement standpoint. 
like you went skiing, you either crashed or you twisted weird and you hurt something in the process. But then, as you said, the pain continued for a long time. And then you had to start looking at, okay, what else can be feeding this type of pain in my body? So is this pretty common for people that uh, they might get an injury from some sort of action and then the pain continues for um, much longer than you would expect it to and it's due to other underlying issues in their body? Yeah, I would say uh, it shouldn't. <laughs> I, ideally, that should not happen. Every Everything should be healing uh, perfectly and on a, a relatively quick time frame. And when that isn't, that's, that's when I think it's time to look deeper. Like, what is there structure-wise that just is chronically injured and, and didn't heal? Is there a small tear? Um, or is it something more... Uh, more systemic, more more metabolic, something something to do with the rest of their body and their healing processes. Like something is is standing in the way um, on that front. But I I would say that yeah, it's it's really common. Maybe maybe even to the extent of it's more common than healing up perfectly and quickly. Unfortunately, right. And so um, if if there is pain that's lasting a long time, how do you start trying to figure out where that could be coming from and what the root cause might be? Uh, that, that's a great question. And that's, that's like a hundred percent what I love to investigate. Uh, I would say it starts first with getting all the information. So, so on first, uh, visits, patients are coming to me with some sort of, uh, chronic joint pain. I want to get all the information, not just what was that thing that started it, but what has the rest of the story been like? Um, what has someone tried? What has their response been to that? Cause that's really helpful. People think, oh, that thing didn't help, so I'm not going to bring it up. But actually, it's really helpful for me to know what didn't help as 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 much as it is what what has helped uh, along that process and sort of putting together their whole, whole picture, getting a sense of what in their in their daily life, in their work duties, in their exercise regimen, uh, what, what what is stopping them because not not everyone's going to have the same triggers. Someone with knee pain, um, one person won't be able to uh, get down on the ground, and and that and just squatting down is going to be impossible for them. Uh, versus someone else can't even go down a flight of stairs without holding onto the railing for dear life and taking it one at a time. So so everyone's different, and um, and and kind of figuring that out involves a, a long conversation. On that front, and then and then diving into the the physical exam, trying trying to really bring that information to light. And I've had a number of patients where they've gone um, to various larger medical centers or other providers where they just really weren't given much of a physical exam. And if you've had chronic pain, we we need to figure out what's going on. We need that physical exam. We need that information. Um, so being able to then. Uh, dive into that to figure out is it is it really coming from inside of the joint because just because we're feeling pain in a joint it, it could be coming from another location um, or is it cartilage is it ligaments is it tendons is it nerves um, that that's all really important to know because the the treatment uh, the treatment plan is going to look different and then. And I would say that's just like phase one, <laughs> that that whole piece of it. Um, and then going into uh, if, if this has been a longstanding injury, what, if anything, is standing in their way of healing? Um, so then that's when I branch into how are they how are they moving? Are they moving at all? Do, do we need to, to build in just um, a, an exercise program that works well for them? That's really important. Uh, nutritional deficiencies, hormonal deficiencies, different lifestyle factors. Um, we, we know there's quite a number of lifestyle factors that impact someone's ability to, to regenerate that, that connective tissue, that joint tissue, just to get it to heal, uh, whether that's um, alcohol intake or tobacco or, or even, even things that we might think of as Oh yeah, they're good to do for self-care, but but people don't connect it to, to actual joint pain. Like, are you sleeping enough hours and how is your stress levels? And then and then going going from that into uh gosh, so so many other things like your hormones and your blood sugar and your thyroid and any any of these things that that are just uh not often thought of as connected at all, but that I see a really, really 
tangible impact um, on 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 someone's ability to to improve their pain and heal. So basically, what you're saying is pain can be complicated. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the tagline. <laughs> pain can be pain complicated. is complicated. Um, so I don't know what type of patients that are usually coming to you. Are they uh, like they've had an injury and they've seen a couple people and they come to see you after? And um, if they have seen other uh, practitioners before you, are they more open to making all these different types of changes? Or are you getting kind of a mix of people just got injured and they're coming in? Because I know... Um, you know, there's a lot of people like if you go into lifestyle factors, you mentioned lifestyle mm -hmm. factors. If you try to tell them, oh, you need to change this, you need more sleep and all this stuff. And they're like, hey, I'm just here for my shoulder. My shoulder hurts. Like, I don't need you to tell me what to do with my life. Like, what kind of pushback do you get from that? Uh, that's a good question. And I guess I'll, I'll, I'll speak first to a patient population, I guess you could say. And I have a number, of a number of patients who are coming to me specifically because they know I work with hormones and women's medicine, and they just incidentally bring up this nagging low back pain that's been there for 15 years. And I'm like, wait, okay, <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not, we're not going to glaze over that. We got to stop. And, and also that that's important too, that's stopping you from being able to exercise and tie your shoes. Like we, we, we also need to address this. Um, and then as far as patients who are coming in more specifically for pain, uh, they may know that I know that I, that I do injection therapies, regenerative injection therapies. So, so yeah, some, some are like, I have pain and, and now do the injection please <laughs> right now. <laughs> and part, part of my first visit is assessing maybe you're a candidate for it, but are you a candidate right now? And, and making a case. And, and I do think of it like this. I'm a, I don't know, lawyer presenting a case if, if it's really in their best interest right now, or if it's their best interest, if they haven't had labs done, they can't even remember. And they say, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or more. I'm like, how about we just make sure you're not anemic? How about we just make sure you're, th you have enough thyroid? How about we just make sure you're not like diabetic or pre-diabetic? Uh, because if you go through the route of injection therapies, any of those other things will impact your actual response to it. And so we're talking about like potential benefit of, of care versus deferring the care, you know, a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months. And I would say that most patients are open to that. Um, and, and I think you're right that, that the, the amount of frustration and time someone has gone through this system, that system, feeling like nothing is working. I, I, I do believe that, that people are more open to looking at their pain more holistically, if you will, just because the other stuff didn't work. The, they, 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 they went through, you know, all the ibuprofen in the world the physical therapy maybe helped a little, but then something came back and then they were just kind of stuck in this like, well, then the primary care just told them, okay, more ibuprofen and more PT. And, uh, and they're like, I need something else. And then, yeah, they're, they're a lot more um, open to me saying, okay, let's look at your, your joint pain within the whole system of your whole, whole kind of physical health. I, I remember a patient, it was maybe two years ago that I saw for some chronic shoulder pain. And one of the first things she said to me is like, you're my seventh doctor <laughs> to, to, to look at this. And I said, well, then my only job is to make sure that, that, that we end it right here, <laughs> that, that there is no number eight. And, and yeah, we, we did, we figured out for, for her case, there was, there was a, a ligament tear um, due, due to her, her work um, duties using her upper body and shoulders and there was no number eight. That's great. Yeah. Um, and you also in there, you brought up a very interesting point because um, if people, a lot of times if they're following just a standard um, a standard care process, they go to the pr primary care uh, physician, they t tell them, you know, like you said, ibuprofen and PT. They go to PT, PT doesn't work. They kind of do the loop all over again. And then the next step is, okay, go see a surgeon, orthopedist, whatever it is. And then now you're stuck in a loop of now we're looking at surgery. Um, and for a lot of people, that's kind of the route they get stuck with because they don't know these other options, which is great that we're talking about this. But uh, what would you do? to be able to get more people to recognize that 
maybe that surgery option isn't what you need. There's other steps other than ibuprofen and PT that might be more important and you need to look at that first. Well, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do is get the word out there <laughs> that like fair, that the ibuprofen, uh, you know, is used to to reduce inflammation, to reduce pain. Uh, physical therapy is great. So I'm definitely saying like there's there's for sure a role for that. And I just wish that like in in that early conversation that that more people, you know, from the provider and also from the patient standpoint had the the, the knowledge and awareness is like. There's a lot other things we can look at before surgery. Like, yes, surgery is needed for some people. Um, I would just say that probably not the number <laughs> of, of surgeries that happen if all these other things were looked at. Um, potentially people could put off their surgeries or not as many people would need the surgeries. And also for a lot of my patients, they're being told maybe they do have the surgical consultation. They're like, yeah, it's not bad enough yet. Come back in five or 10 years when it's worse. They're given nothing else. They're, they're given basically no hope but to just sit there in their pain for years or a decade and then come back for the surgery. It's like that. I think we can buy you some time. And I say that because of all the many, many patients and, and all the positive outcomes I've seen. Like there's more we can do. It's just a matter of, of awareness. Right. Yep, that's exactly it too. And then um, I don't think people also understand that, you know, surgery is a business too, right? If you were shut down for four months due to COVID um, and you weren't performing surgeries and you have bills to pay, then right now, I mean, people are going to be pushing more for surgery than they were before, which is kind of a sad reality, but it's true. It is. And I, there's, there's been a lot of really hard or really challenging things going on. And if there's been a, a, one of the few little glimmers of positives, it's been that some patients have seen me because they could not get into the surgeon and they were so desperate mm. that they just Googled like non-surgical options for hip osteoarthritis because their that surgical center was closed. They couldn't even get in for the consultation. Um, so there, there has been, uh, a, a slight positive to everything else that's been going on is that that some people are now taking this time where they're just sitting at home in pain, being told that that the the medical center is closed, and and this is this is finally the the time that they've had to to find find a different route for themselves. That's perfect. Um, so one of the things you uh, have mentioned is metabolism can impact pain and then the hormones can impact pain. Can you explain more about how both of those can impact pain? Uh, yes. So uh, metabolism can and does mean many things. Uh, but within our context, I would say inflammation is a really top one. Uh, we know there's a lot of inflammatory markers that we can check on labs that are associated with different chronic diseases, such as heart disease and high blood pressure and diabetes. Um, so, so some of these we can check and some are actually coming even specifically from our, our fat cells. Um, and so, so cytokines are, are certain inflammatory markers and we know that those coming from fat cells, adipokines can be elevated in and around osteoarthritis. And it's this sort of um, snowball effect where, where we don't really know chicken or egg what starts, but in osteoarthritis, if there is also some metabolic disease, then the, the adipokines, the inflammatory markers are creating this, this sort of effect where they're creating more, more of the, the osteoarthritis process, which then in turn is uh, upregulating, is, is increasing the, the adipokines. And some, some really interesting research, I, I think I happened upon it earlier this year, uh, was looking at knee osteoarthritis. And in the, the fat pad right next to the knee, they found that's where that's where most of those adipokines were coming from. So literally the fat right next to the joint is what was kind of setting off the joint, which was in turn setting off the, the inflammatory markers coming from the fat. Um, and then and then jumping into uh, into glucose, insulin. So a lot of people are aware of the importance of checking your blood sugar and making sure that's well regulated because of diabetes and prediabetes. Uh, but we also know that just generally having uh, insulin resistance or some of the markers of insulin resistance as sort of a, a chronic uh, metabolic hormonal dysfunction is is fairly common. Uh, the most recent stats I, I had come across is about 
seven and eight of the adults in the U.S. have one one of the markers. You need you need three to get the diagnosis. Um, but but that being said, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of the, the adults in the U.S. Uh, have have some of the markers of metabolic disease, and so. So, so we see that also have this sort of um, setting off the degenerative joint processes and um, and creating this effect where after meals, there's this increase of insulin that happens in the environment of insulin resistance, uh, which then directly irritates and inflames the, the joints. We can actually see this. I don't do this, but in research, they can they can check um, the fluid inside of joints and find uh, and find increasing insulin. So so that's actually a really early marker of uh, of insulin resistance is increased insulin within the, within the joint synovial tissue uh, or synovial fluid. Excuse me. Um, and then yes, <laughs> there, there's so much to this. This is kind of my uh, this is my terrain right here. Uh, so then. Uh, other hormones, so insulin, yes, is a hormone, but then other hormones like thyroid and our sex hormones and adrenal hormones, all of them also have an impact in in uh, joint health, I would say, in that balance between more joint degeneration versus encouraging more joint regeneration, because theoretically any of our tissues should have the capacity to heal. But if someone is, and so for, for most of these uh, hormones, it's, it's a deficiency. So, so a deficiency in thyroid hypothyroidism or a deficiency in testosterone or estrogen. Um, any of those will basically just slow the, the rate of the recovery of the regeneration of that joint tissue of that cartilage tissue. Uh, we can see this in um, quite a, quite a lot of research now is looking at this. And so we can see it in adults and just checking their hormone levels and seeing where, where are you in terms of, do you have osteoarthritis and then following people over time to see, uh, is that stable? Is it get, does it get worse? And we can see those with the, with the lowest hormone levels, get the earlier diagnosis of osteoarthritis and also then accelerate more quickly. And they also have animal studies where they literally are blocking their hormone and then adding in hormone. And when they're blocking their estrogen, they see the, the osteoarthritis happen. And when they add the estrogen back in, they see the joint regeneration happen. Interesting. Yeah. So going back to the, uh, the pain being complicated. So um, even like phytoestrogens and all that type of stuff that can influence it as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. There, there's, there's so many things that can influence, uh, if we're talking specifically about estrogen and estrogen receptors, uh, there are things that are estrogen mimicking and estrogen blocking. And, and then in the middle, I'd say there's also compounds that are estrogen modulating. So some things will overall, uh, confer a net negative estrogen, um, circulating estrogen levels. Some will be sort of, um, adding, adding to the estrogen and creating an increase. And then some are a little bit more balancing. And so, yeah, with phytoestrogens, gosh, it's sort of, I mean, I mean, it's all over the place and that, um, we see that for example, certain, certain uh, soy compounds can be helpful, but then for others, there's research showing that regular high soy intake is negative for, for your estrogen. And, um, and so we, we have a couple of things going on, which is not only what, what if anything is the, the soy itself doing, but then in the context of um, if this is not an organic food product, what has been applied to it? And is that also a xenoestrogen? Are the um, are any of the you know chemicals that are that are put on these crops also affecting our estrogen levels? We know that just in environmental science, um, gosh, just about every, anything we don't want <laughs> uh, in terms of plastics and pollutants and those kind of things can can have a negative impact on our hormones it's 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 quite widespread and we just have to gosh be our own advocates for um just clean eating making sure you know what's in your food and knowing what's in your um your your environment in in what you're putting on your body in in detergents in in kind of all of that and then are you also looking at other environmental issues such as mold? I 
would say I am an amateur on that front and that I get the experts involved if I do think there's um, some type of like chronic mold illness. Uh, I know, I know some, I would say I have like a, an introductory, a naturopathic introductory level to it and can talk, uh, can identify some of, uh, some of what might be connected there, can discuss some uh, testing with patients, but I'm I'm usually referring to the experts so they can put together a little bit more comprehensive uh, treatment specifically to that. So, what are some ways to help people to start making um, a healthy balance of hormones and not uh, just depleting the hormones or pushing them out of balance? Well, uh, that's a great question, and I and I would start by saying that we're not all nece- um, necessarily working from a place of everything is deficient. So, so it's a matter of what's going on with someone and what do we want to test and, and what may be, you know, then found to be high or low. Um, but, but generally speaking for like estrogen, progesterone and testosterone, what we call the sex hormones. Um, I look at nutrition, I look at lifestyle, I look at, at movement and I want to make sure that nothing is deficient in, in those realms so that they can actually be creating the right amounts and sets and, and levels of hormones as, as much as their, their body will, um, uh, allow for. So, uh, making sure that someone is eating adequate, um, just your, what we say the the macro macronutrients, um, getting, getting enough of the proteins and healthy sources of fats. And, um, what does their diet look like? Generally, are they eating, um, something that's more whole foods or, or are they relying on a lot more processed foods that would typically be higher in simple carbohydrates and refined sugars and those kind of things? Um, what, is, what is their uh, water intake like? Um, what is their digestion like? Digestion, uh, our digestive system is really important in our hormones in terms of getting out what we want to get out through the natural sources that our body is eliminating things. Um, so, so kind of making sure that that system is online and working well with everything. Um, and then what I was mentioning earlier, just in terms of quality sleep and amount of sleep and stress levels and what support does someone need around that, um, to make sure that that's, that's as much as an imbalance as, as we can be with sort of a, a crazy stress filled world out there. <laughs> we got to take really good care of ourselves. And, uh, and then movement wise, I'm, I'm just kind of wanting to nudge, (laughs) gently encourage patients along. If they are inactive, what is the first step to getting them active? We, we know that painful, painful arthritic joints are not going to improve with inactivity. It just doesn't, the, the science doesn't work that way. We got to figure out what is the step one. Is it, is it a yoga or Qigong class? Is it a water aerobics? Is it, is it just doing some stretching at home? Um, you know, often I, I'm, I'm talking with my patients about getting, getting someone to do a more of a biomechanical analysis and figuring out what muscles are engaging versus aren't engaging, get something a little bit more customized to them. That is great. And also, I just want all my patients to get moving. <laughs> if they're not moving, just get them moving. And, uh, and then, and then get, uh, get those muscles turning on without, without any, any muscle engagement, muscle strength. There's a lot more force going through those joints than really needs to be. We need the muscles to kind of take over their share of the load of our just weight walking around this world, uh, day to day. And then, um, also, also during physical activity. So kind of getting those muscles turned on when they're supposed to be getting them strong, building up those muscle fibers that creates its own, um, uh, kind of positive feedback loop with our hormones so that we're getting m- a much better balance of, of the testosterone, of the estrogen when someone is developing their muscles versus in that previous state of, of, no, of minimal or no activity. So when you are trying to uh, develop uh, better muscle fibers and increase muscle uh, or lean tissues, are you, have you noticed a lot of people are um, consuming low levels of protein in their diet um and are you advising them to increase protein levels and if so what what like how much protein per uh pound of body weight are you looking at 
Uh, that's a great question. So I would say that not all patients, but a decent amount, if they are actually tracking their protein intake, are lower than than what we want. And um, and so just kind of generally, globally, I work with a lot of women. Um, and so I would say that, gosh, they may, um, some averages may be like 35 to 50 grams of protein a day. And I know they're going to get their that that's a that's something that's inhibiting their healing the we need to get a little bit more protein on board because that is one of the building blocks of regenerating this chronically injured tissue so i'm boosting them up i'm like okay next step is 65 and maybe um i don't personally see patients with advanced kidney disease so i'm not having to to um, walk a fine line between any sort of protein intake concerns generally speaking so, so I would say that, that I'm increasing my patients, boosting them up from a deficiency to, uh, you know, 65 is kind of a, a first step more like 75 to hundred grams. And that, that is, um, we just talk about what works best for them, what they, what they like to eat, what they will eat, <laughs> what they will cook and, and figure out if that's, if that's meat, eggs, um, if, if they're kind of maxed out um, on their meal wise and they're like, I cannot eat any more <laughs> beef and eggs. And, and if we're adding in like a uh, collagen powder, uh, I tend to, I tend to, to use um, collagen powder if I'm using a protein powder, just, just because of its ease on the stomach. I don't have to worry about the kinds of uh, dietary intolerances with like soy and whey and those kind of things. Um, I, I tend, I tend to find that patients don't, don't mind it. They can get an unflavored or a flavored one. Um, so, so kind of incorporating it into their life seems to be pretty easy if I'm adding in something specifically a supplement. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people aren't consuming as much, uh, protein as they think they are. Um, and then once they start adding more in, they do feel pretty full and it can be hard for them to get more in. <laughs> Yes. Yep. Yep. And, and so that's, and also if someone's eating like two meals a day instead of three, you know, most of us are not going to eat six or eight eggs in a, in a, in a sitting. Yep. Um, so it's, it's, it's figuring out like what in their current meal plans can be adjusted. And then do we need to add something else extra? Um, I, I am personally just not a fan of putting the collagen powder straight into my coffee. I, 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 I like my coffee to taste like coffee. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if I'm doing a collagen powder, I'll do like one of those like mocha flavored ones and just pretend it's like a totally different thing. It's, it's not my coffee. It's a totally different beverage. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, you're getting a lot of information from just a health history report with people. And then um, once you start getting some ideas of different areas, that you want to take a deeper look at. Are there specific lab tests that you like to run to try to gather more information or is it very dependent upon what you see in front of you? Uh, it, it is very much uh, individualized, but I definitely am wanting to get a sense of timing of past labs. Like if nothing has been run in, in recent history, then then let's talk. Maybe that's not me ordering it. Maybe they're, they're already going to see their primary care pretty soon. Great. Okay, so we talk about like it's, it's nothing, uh, for step one, it's nothing extremely in depth. It's like, let's just get your basics first to see what, what further we need to, to dig into there. So like, I just want your glucose, your hemoglobin A1C, like just get any thyroid test whatsoever. Just get your, your CBC and your metabolic panel. Like let's just get some basics run first. If that hasn't been done in a while, um, if I am uh, concerned or wanting to work up uh, to, to rule out some inflammatory disorders or rheumatoid arthritis that we haven't really mentioned. So if I'm wanting to see if their, their joint disease is due to an autoimmune condition, then yeah, there would definitely be um, different, different panels I'm running there. Uric acid is something that I, that I do check pretty commonly because, um, because I kind of have my, my a foot in each world of this kind of metabolic concerns and joint disease. And I see that uric acid is sort of a, a direct, um, direct interaction there. And then the hormone panels is, is definitely case by case. If someone feels like my energy is great, everything feels good. I just hurt my back, you know, do, doing some sort of physical activity, or I have a number of patients that fall off 
ladders and horses and things. <laughs> um, so it was like, okay, it was just, just an injury from this, but nothing else, you know, taking, taking all the rest of their, their history, everything seems pretty good. Okay. I'm, I'm not necessarily going to say we definitely need to run every hormone on you. Um, but if a patient is coming in for lingering, uh, sacroiliac pain, uh, plus fatigue and, uh, hot flashes and weight gain and, and their sex drive fizzled up and then, okay, like, let's, let's think about this as, you know, yes, there's, there's something joint pain going on, but I want to see what else is going on. Um, then, then that's where I'm doing more, more of the hormone, uh, evaluation as well. Do you have kind of a, a basic protocol protocol or treatment that um, if someone comes in and they have joint pain of some sort, do you start with, okay, let's start here and then we can start looking at labs. Uh, but this, this is kind of the baseline level that you want to get people at first. Um, that's a, that's a good question. Kind of, <laughs> I would say I'm, I, I have framework and that framework is influenced by what they are, uh, what they are experiencing on a musculoskeletal and how that's impacting their daily life. Plus like how much, uh, how, how much of everything else kind of general symptoms, hormonal symptoms are going on. Um, for me to think about, okay, this is quote unquote, just, just, uh, just pure and simple joint pain, or this is joint pain that is entirely coming from some sort of systemic hormonal inflammatory, or are we putting together, um, a, a little bit of, of both pieces. And then of course, um, all, all of that is then sort of matched to what, what are their priorities? What, what is impacting their quality of life the most? Um, maybe, maybe the, the joint, maybe they really want to focus on something else and they mention the knee pain, but the knee pain is not really a concern. It only bothers them if they bike over a certain number of miles and their, and the, the, their priority list is low. Like, I still think it's valuable, but I, but I'm definitely going to, um, focus on if it's their thyroid, that's, that's the, the main concern. And then you also do injection therapy. Is that um, PRP or what, what type of injection therapies are you doing? Yeah, so I do prolotherapy and I do PRP, the platelet-rich plasma injection. And I got into this just uh, mentioning earlier, just me, me combing PubMed, trying to figure out what else is there, what else can, can go on, like I'm sure a lot of people have been doing right now, sitting at home, not sometimes not able to get in into the, the office that they're referred to. Like, what, what else can, can I do? And, and having, having the medical background, I, I, looking through PubMed is maybe a little bit more accessible to me. Um, but regardless, it's great. Um, free, 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 the, the Google of all um, medical papers out, uh, out there. And so I found some studies about, uh, it was looking at PRP and it was an animal study and it looked at um, ACL tears and it was a rat or, or mice mouse model. And so they, they, they cut one of the ACLs in one of the knees and um, cause it's an animal study. And then, and then they put PRP in there and then some, some period later they sacrificed the animals and checked and saw that the, the ACLs, where they had put the PRP was actually stronger and thicker than the one that the rat was born with. And I thought, well, that's crazy. That sounds like science fiction. I need to read more of this. And that was probably my first or second year in practice. And, uh, and so, yeah, that <laughs> reading that paper then got me looking into like, what is this? I, I remember a uh, grand rounds when I was in school, like about the injection therapies, but it kind of, I didn't really I mean, I, I, I was there, but I didn't really pay super attention because I was much more of like women's medicine and hormone focused at the time. And um, and so, yeah, I, I found out like, oh, there's organizations that that are all about this. And there's people that are just focused in, about this and read more research and attended their conferences where they share all the the most up to date uh you know, best practices and, and new research coming out and, and then eventually uh, spent a few years and traveled all over the country and, and Canada and Mexico, learning every everything that I possibly could get my hands on relating to the topic of learning it. Because I thought this is a whole system of medicine. This is not something just to dabble into. Uh, so I'm going to jump in with both feet. And uh, and yeah, I I, I got <laughs> I got I got training from from all sorts of organizations and, and people and 
And yeah, so probably five, six years ago, started bringing that into my practice. And it was my academic and personal interest in PRP that got me into it. But I actually do a huge amount of prolotherapy. That's the that's predominantly what I do, uh, just because I guess it's what what I um, the technique of of prolotherapy is is pretty unique. It's definitely a lot different than if people out there have had cortisone injections, like the whole um, analyzing the joint and and assessing ligaments and where the injections go is its own system of medicine and uh, and it made a huge impact on me. And so I started bringing it into my practice and saying, oh, this works really great. And that yeah, sometimes I use PRP and I like it, but but so much of the time um prolotherapy works works really really well do you want to talk about the difference um between a cortisone shot and prolotherapy because i know a lot of people they feel really good after a cortisone shot for a little tiny bit and then it wears off Uh, so can you talk about what's going on there and what's the difference yeah so i would say on the surface (laughs) on the surface they might seem similar but behind the scenes they are entirely different uh, so on the surface, your uh, knee hurts and the injection goes to your knee. <laughs> where this isn't like acupuncture, where you're treating a different part of the body. Um, so, so with the the cortisone injections, it is a steroid medication inside of the syringe. So that's what's getting injected. For those that don't know, um, so so that goes in there and it gets inflammation, just psh, like disperses the inflammation, blocks it right right out of the joint right away. So um, while a lot of my patients have described that the cortisone injection can, can be um, a bit painful in the moment, the, the, the pain relief is, is pretty quick. Um, like right, right away, people are noticing like, oh, wow, that feels great. My, my joint doesn't hurt. And, um, and just depending on what's going on, if that really was the, the only and true source of the pain, that could last a really long time, that pain relief. Um, or it could start to wear off within a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And and my my thinking about that is that, yeah, the inflammation was perhaps part of it, but there's obviously something else going on that made that wear off and, and made it just not, um, not a long-term treatment versus with the prolotherapy and the PRP. So those are under an umbrella we'd call uh, regenerative injection therapies. And so the the whole how, the whole why, like what how it works is um, the injection is creating this, I guess I explained to patients, like it's communication. Uh, I need to figure out where the injections go. And then the, the injections themselves are providing communication to your body, in essence, sort of tricking it or just telling it that, um, that no, this isn't a chronic injury. This is a new, fresh injury. You just got injured right here. So bring in the immune system, bring in just the, the, the healing processes that, that we all have within us. And and reheal that tissue, reheal that um, cartilage, ligament, tendon, uh, joint, just generally speaking. And so um, they they all have numbing agents in them by and large. So so there can be a, a brief um, numb uh, pain relieving effect from that. But their intent isn't just to okay, we just get the pain, just suppress the pain, um, suppress the the inflammation. And, and our job is done here. It's re- there's really a deeper goal to it, and that's to get the joint to heal, to get it to kind of a new and better place. And, um, and so that's where they, it can be a little bit less of an instant gratification, to be honest, with the injection therapies, because the effect is often building. So while some people will notice like, oh, wow, that was a really, really great response within you know, a day or a couple of days, what's more typical is for it to just be slowly building over weeks. And with the prolotherapy, I would say about three to four weeks out is pretty typical. And with the PRP, it can be as much as six or eight weeks. So for more than a month, just slowly, 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 it's, it's getting better. It's healing. And is it true if you get uh, multiple cortisone shots in the same location, then it can start to degenerate the joint? Uh, yes. What I will say is that research shows that with three or more within a year, it will increase and accelerate, uh, degenerative joint disease or osteoarthritis, same thing. Um, what, what I would say is that we don't know that one or two is a hundred percent harmless. It's common. It's done. There's millions of people out there getting it. But we can't say that one or two is perfectly fine and then suddenly three is terrible. Um, 
my my take on it is that we just don't have enough research comparing saying okay we know three in a year is bad let's compare that to two let's compare that to one and see if we really do have a true like dose dependent response for example so we see two-thirds of the damage with two in a year as opposed to three and and one-third of the damage with one we don't we don't have that that fine detail of information um so I think they should be considered cautiously. There, there can be, uh, there can of course be a benefit, but there can also be a risk as well. Well, do you have any uh, final things that you want to touch on for chronic pain and just joint disease in general? Um, I would say I just want to encourage you all to just keep going. <laughs> if you feel stuck, just keep going. If you're not getting the answers, just keep going. If you feel like your doctor isn't listening to you or that you're like, crap, my, my, my joints really do hurt. And I don't think I have gotten a, a decent physical exam. Uh, the prescription pad just came out and, and their, their hands never contacted that joint that hurts. Just find more options. There's more out there. If you feel like you're stuck in a waiting game or just plain stuck, uh, keep, keep investigating, keep going. That's, that's how I, that's how I figured out my path. And, uh, and that, that's, that's what I help with my patients as well. And then uh, what do you do each day to improve your own health? I am a super good sleeper. <laughs> I have never been someone who, who scrimps on their hours uh, going through my nine years of undergrad and medical school, never an all-nighter. Um, I'm, I definitely believe in the restorative powers of sleep. And if I get under eight, I'm like, I feel like I'm losing something like losing a game. It's like gamified. <laughs> I'm like definitely over eight hours every night. <laughs> and then, uh, well, people can find you at drcortal.com and you also have a new book that's just been released. Do you want to talk about that book? Yes. So my book, uh, younger joints today, uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago and it's more on this topic. If you are curious about thinking like, yeah, I feel like there probably is something more going on with my joints. What could it possibly be? This is laying out my whole thought process organized into a seven-step approach where you're going through all of these topics. And I, and I talk about what do we know as far as all these other things that are really never never connected with joint pain that, that actually do have a real uh, appreciable impact. And it's up on Amazon. If you're an ebook reader, it's in Kindle. And if you're a a paper book, a uh, paperback reader like me, then then it's also up there as well. Perfect. Um, and you also see patients both virtually telehealth and in person. So if people want to reach out to you, um, then they can. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Angela, for coming on and talking about uh, just chronic pain and different ways that we can start to reduce it and how complicated pain is. I think that's going to be the title is pain is complicated. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you for having me. As I said in the beginning, pain is a multifactorial condition, and there are a lot of other steps you can go through before having to succumb to surgery. While no one really wants to go under the knife, sometimes it seems like the easy way out if it will relieve your pain. But any additional trauma to the body and tissues can cause more issues later down the road. I highly recommend testing out some of these methods if you can before having to get surgery. As a reminder, for listening, you get a 20% discount at Mountainside Herbals by using the code PODCAST. Go to mountainsideherbals.com to learn more. Next week, I have Dr. Roger Murphy on the show. Let's go learn who he is. I am here with Dr. Roger Murphy. Hey, Roger, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? I'm a gourmet chef. Gourmet. Tell me more. <laughs> it's interesting. So let me tell you about this, Brian. Uh, um, I grew up in a household where my dad cooked, but he traveled a lot. He did a lot of traveling, but my mom couldn't boil water. So we grew up and none of the kids could really cook. And um, but it, it, uh, interesting, my younger brother, 10 years, my junior turned, he went to culinary school, became a, a, a well-known chef. He worked with a lot of James, he worked with two James Beard award winners, which is the you know Academy Award of Chefs. And, um, you know, about uh, 10, uh, I guess about uh, eight, nine years ago, um, I just, I, you know, I was grilling out some chicken. We're, we're on a vacation, no condiments. You know, usually you smother that in Worcestershire sauce or whatever. And you think, okay, that's 
gourmet, but uh, I picked some some herbs out of a garden and put them on there and realized, wow, that that was really that was good. That was good. And uh, so I've just over the last eight or nine years, I've just turned into a passionate, um, you know, uh, gourmet cook. You know, I just I get it, I just have you know all these cookbooks I cook out of, and so it's been a real it's been a real blast. It's uh, so satisfying when you make something that's just absolutely amazing and you're proud yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> like it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what will we be learning about in our interview together? Well, I tell you what we're going to be learning about is a, is a, is a, something that I'm so passionate about and that's fibromyalgia, which is a group of symptoms, uh, which include diffuse achy, sometimes disabling pain, low energy, restless egg syndrome, irritable bowel, anxiety, depression, brain fog, those symptoms alone would put many people down and out for the count, right? But for fibromyalgia, they have all those things. And, um, you know, one of the great things about that, if there is, for me, anyway, it's made me such a better doctor because I've had to treat so many different types of, of conditions. So I think people are going to listen to the, to the uh, podcast. They're going to find whether they have fibromyalgia or not, they're going to find some golden nuggets in there that I think will be helpful for them if they're, you know, just looking to get healthier. And what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? Well, I think that you know you really uh, you're doing your body a disservice if you're not eating enough vegetables. I just think that it's not it's it's an easy thing to do. You know, the easiest thing for me to do is a, is just I eat a salad almost every day. I mean, it's just the easy thing, and on that salad you've got you know you got tomatoes and you got carrots and you got maybe put a little raw cauliflower or broccoli. It, I mean, it doesn't sound, doesn't sound real appetizing, but you know, once you start getting into that healthy habit of eating a lot of plant, you know, more of a plant-based diet, I'm, I'm a meat eater as well. I love a good steak and, you know, and, uh, but I think your body really needs those, those phytochemicals, those flavonoids that you get from plants. Now fruits are okay, you know, but I think sometimes people eat too much fruit, but plants, gosh, if you just eat, if you, if you just do, one thing uh, a day, and that is just to eat more more plants. Yep, too much fruit, not enough vegetables. That sounds like uh, the ratio most people follow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? I think uh, number one is you know I really believe that everybody needs an hour of power, and that may for you know they may start off as a quarter of an hour of power, but you. If you find time to watch TV or you find time to be on Facebook or whatever it is, you can find an hour, a car ride an hour, and you can divide that hour up in different ways. But for me, it's uh, part of that time is meditating or it could be prayer, whatever you feel more comfortable with. But it's quiet time where you're feeding your soul with positive material, reading material, whether that's Joyce Myers, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, uh, Joe Osteen, doesn't matter, but just something that feed your soul that's healthy. We've got so much negativity in our, in our environment right now. And then I believe that any, you know, stretching, really stretching, uh, and then affirmations and goal setting, I think are important to review those every day. And then my number one is exercise. If you can, now the population I work with with fibro, that's not something they can do immediately, but I do think that exercise is the great panacea. If you exercise consistently, you can get away with with a, with a, some uh, some less than stellar eating habits periodically. It's not an excuse to not eat healthy, but you can get away periodically with a glass of red wine or you know a beer with your buddies out. Or if you're you know if you just had to have that macaroni and cheese that is at your favorite restaurant once a month, you know you can get away with doing that. Again, it is another episode on pain conditions and diving deeper into the root causes. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.